Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. We're going to deviate from that just a bit today with our guests Jackie Lees and K.G. Miles, because they have a new book out about Bob Dylan called Bob Dylan in London, Troubadour Tales. It's a combination guidebook for a walking tour, history lesson, and critical analysis. And there is sort of a Madison connection, because Madison was the last place Dylan stayed before he went to New York for the first time in January 1961 which is where KG's next book, Bob Dylan in the Big Apple, begins. It was bitterly cold in New York that winter and would be even colder when Dylan went to London in December 1962, which is where Jackie and KG pick up the story. It is a story they are eminently qualified to write as Londoners who are longtime Dylan aficionados and co-curators of the Dylan Room at the Troubadour Club. Jackie took a break from a career writing and editing for a homelessness charity to work on the book, The Room, and also provide some amateur management for the Dylan Band. KG, whom I saw speak at the inaugural conference of the Bob Dylan Archives in 2019, is, as I said, also the author of a companion volume coming in about three weeks, Bob Dylan in the Big Apple, Troubadour Tales of New York. It is a pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Jackie Lees and KG Miles. Thank you. Hi, thank you. Thanks for being with us. This December 21st will be the 59th anniversary of Dylan's first appearance at a London folk club, the King and Queen. Now, in the winter of 1962, he was not a star or even much of a success. How did he happen to be in London that night? He was in London that night because he had been invited over um, to take part in a play uh, that was going to be on the television called Madhouse in Castle Street. And that in itself is quite remarkable, I think, because he had been spotted in New York in the previous autumn singing in one of the clubs. I think it was called, uh, is in Pastor's Place, I think. Um, and the director of the play, well, he must have made such a huge impression because he came back to London, was looking to cast this play, and he requested that they fly over this unknown, certainly not an actor, um, at the expense of the BBC, put him up in a very posh hotel in the centre of London, only then to find out, um, of course, that uh, when he arrived to start reading the play, that uh, he couldn't act, uh, something that, of course, we have perhaps had evidence of, uh, further evidence of afterwards. So that's why he was in London. He was staying um, at the Mayfair Hotel originally, um, but he was using it as an opportunity to soak up everything in that very vibrant London scene of 1962. Um, folk music was, you know, really, really popular. There were a lot of clubs and he went around. He was determined, I think, to just see as much as he possibly could. And so he found himself uh, at the King and Queen, a very small folk club um, on the first floor. It's still there. The King, the King and Queen pub is still there. The folk club is, well, the club. I'm not sure if it just does folk music now. Um, and so he was in the audience and he was spotted by an English folk singer called Martin Carthy, who had recognised him. As you say, Stu, he wasn't well known, but he had made some ripples locally um, and he had been on the cover of Sing Out magazine. And that magazine was available in London but would have only been picked up probably by quite hardcore folk devotees. 
So Martin Carthy had seen his face on the cover, recognised it sitting in the audience, went up to him and said, you're Bob Dylan, uh, to which obviously Bob Dylan replied, I am. And he asked, would he like to come up and sing some songs? To which he said, ask me later. Um, and then later he gave a little nod and came up and played, I think it was four, four songs. We had the great pleasure, Keith and I, of talking to Martin Carthy earlier this year. Um, and Martin Carthy himself, I think, can't quite remember what the four songs were. Um, so I'm not going to risk telling you, only to have lots of people tell me I've got it wrong. Um, but he played four songs. And Martin Carthy has been, is on record saying um, that he was absolutely fantastic. So that's why he was there in this small London um, pub. How remarkable it must have been for this producer to try and convince the producers at the BBC to bring this guy whom they undoubtedly had not heard of to fly him over and, and to put him up at a fancy hotel. Uh, un unfortunately, the BBC did not preserve those tapes. What firsthand evidence or recollections do we have about just how poor an actor he was? We, we have no evidence from them, <laughs> unfortunately, um, but we have, as Jeff said, we've got plenty of evidence later uh, at uh, how, how appalling an actor he is, bless him. But um, really awful tragedy is that the BBC wiped the tape of Madhouse on Castle Street, um, but they didn't wipe it at the time. They wiped it years and years later. So they, they waited uh, with it in the archives and then someone picked it up and thought right no one's going to want to see that anymore even though at that time Dylan was a big star but there you go that's the BBC for you. It would appear that we wouldn't have much evidence of his acting because it was he himself who reported that he couldn't act he couldn't read the lines I think was what he said um, somebody else's lines perhaps he couldn't connect with them I, I don't know because the part was meant to be an anarchic young folk singer um, so I don't think he even got as far as you know acting that part and then someone had to politely say Bob we don't think you're up to this he basically uh, got himself out of it and then the playwright and the director had to come up with a solution which was to split his part in two so that Dylan then went on to just do the singing and was left one line uh, and a professional actor David Warner was brought in to read to actually play the part as it had been cast. You mentioned his experiences at the hotel apparently he was not an ideal hotel guest. <laughs> Uh, no, he he certainly wasn't. Um, he was, I think he just, he was just having such a great time. He was young, you know, and he was bringing people back off the streets, playing his guitar, smoking things that weren't really legal. Um, and I think it was by mutual consent. He didn't like the Mayfair Hotel. He's reported as having said that he didn't like the fact there were all these endless people. There was a stream of someone would take his bags from the car, somebody else would take them to the lift door, someone else would go up in the lift. I think he just didn't, he just didn't appreciate the formality. Um, so the BBC ended up reaccommodating him at the Cumberland Hotel, which had a, you know, was a, was a less sort of sniffy, stuffy hotel at the time. Um, but whether he spent many nights there, I couldn't tell you because he was certainly out sofa surfing. I don't know if you use that expression in America, but we say sofa surfing when you stay with a friend, um, you know, just sleep on their sofa. Um, so, yes, he, he wasn't an ideal guest. But I think it was his natural, I mean, he'd done the sofa surfing in Greenwich Village. It was a very important thing for Dylan to 
not isolate himself, but to go out and be amongst people. He's, you know, Liam Clancy says he was a sponge to everything. You know, he he wanted to learn from people. And part of that was staying at different people's houses, like Martin Carthy. You know, he stayed with these people, as he had done in Greenwich Village. You know, he got himself around and about. You know, he didn't, he, he never, never, never gathered much moss at any time, really. You know, he wanted to be out learning and talking to people and being around musicians as well, I think was pretty important to him. And, you know, it was a, it was a very short, uh, very intense period of time that to London. Um, but he learned a heck of a lot and he went back completely uh, a new person, energized, really. How important was that night at the King and Queen in his development as a songwriter and a performer? Um, I think it, what was very, very important about that night was that he be became friends with Martin Carthy, um, who then took him under his wing and taught him a lot of English folk songs that Bob Dylan wouldn't have been familiar with at the time, taught him new arrangements, taught him new styles, introduced him to new clubs in London. Um, so we, we know, obviously, for a fact that Dylan um, is, you know, is indebted to Martin Carthy for some of the tracks that appeared on the freewheeling Bob Dylan, for A Girl from the North Country, for example, um, where he took uh, uh, Martin Carthy's arrangement of Scarborough Fair, an English folk song. Um, so I think that first occasion was more of more one of uh, who he met and how that meeting then uh, enabled him to become uh, more familiar with the rest of what was going on in London at the time. And he wasn't welcomed everywhere. Um, you know, he went to uh, the Singers Club. There, there was a bit of a split within the folk clubs in London. Some had quite strict rules um, whereby you should only sing a song from your whole home country. Perhaps you shouldn't sing it accompanied. It should be performed as it was performed, as it was written. Um, and, and Bob Dylan, you know, he, he didn't follow rules in that way. So um, uh, some people found him to be, well, what can I say, an upstart, a bit of an American brat, I guess. Um, and maybe nothing much has changed, you know. Uh, that, that first trip to London seems almost like in microcosm, uh, Bob Dylan's whole career, you know, polarizing opinion, alienating people, trying new things. I, I was wondering today, does he even have a comfort zone? Because he comes over to act, he's never acted in a play that he, he's got no relationship with. And, you know, I, I just think that, that those six weeks-ish that he was here in London, um, just uh, are, are so reflective of the performer and the man he he went on to be or already was, no doubt. So the in the London folk scene sort of mirrored the division between New York and Boston that that we would have been experiencing in the states about the same time. Yes, yes. but he, he didn't have that um, division in Greenwich Village. For example, you know, he would get up and people would, would people would perform fairly easily, I think, in that particular folk scene. There might have been a division between there uh, and other places. Um, but this, what Jackie's describing and we describe in the book is the division was within London. So, you know, you put it wrong or you did the wrong thing and someone, there were plenty of people that would call you out and heckle. And certainly Dylan had almost stand up rows with people in some of the clubs and you know he was a um 
an incredibly confident young man. You know, I mean, brash might be one way to, way to term it, but he was incredibly confident in his own skills and, you know, his, his own abilities. And I think Jackie's absolutely spot on. That first um, night of the King and Queen and the introduction to Martin Carthy gave him that helping hand around London, um, without which I think there would have just been much, much more conflict um, within the folk scene. And he wouldn't have been welcomed in in the same way. Martin Carthy was a, an incredibly important folk artist here um, and worldwide and very well respected. And to have Martin Carthy um, looking after him and, and taking him around as he did to, to a certain extent um, was very important to him. Um, obviously, as we describe in the book, uh, during that first trip, he also uh, met up with um, uh, Rick Von Schmidt and Richard Farina, um, who he knew from from back in America, and and that was important as well. You know, he 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 enjoyed himself over here at that time, but he learned a heck of a lot. In the winter of 1962, he's he's 21 and a half years old. How old is Martin Carthay and some of the other British? singers at the time are they contemporaries are they a couple of years older what's the relationship that they're very much contemporaries in fact martin carthy's birthday is only two or three days <laughs> before before dylan's they are so contemporary um and yes it was a young scene um so uh, martin carthy in particular they were they would have shared a lot of um kind of interests i am sure um, I don't know about, I can't remember, you and McCall, presumably at that point, Keith, would have been a fair bit older. Yeah, there were, there were a few that were a little bit older and had, you know, set the scenes and, and, and people like, you know, you and McCall and others who who basically written down rules <laughs> for everything. You know, this was their patch, you know, and as Jackie says, you know, there were rules about what instruments could be used with certain folk songs and things of this kind. And they were trying to regulate it, um, you know, uh, extremely rigidly, um, which was a bit of a, would have been a bit of a shock to, to Dylan coming in from Greenwich Village, where you could stand up and sing anything, really. Um, you know, so to, to see Dylan through that, that particular rule-based minefield, uh, that particular time you know he had martin carthy there um and that was that was uh, very important but yes they were they were basically contemporaries um you know and i think i think from from the tales we we hear they got on extremely well for those who uh, don't have the discography at hand just to remind you dylan began recording freewheeling in march 1962 which is nine months before he went to London. He did not finish the album until after he returned from London in January 63. So you really see this sojourn in London as being critical to how that album turned out. Creatively, in, in, in how, you know, there were changes that were made. I think the, the most critical um, aspect to this trip was it, it, it you know, Bob Dylan was a was a reasonable sized fish in a in the pond in Greenwich Village, and you know Bob Dylan needed to get onto a global stage. He needed to move, and he needed to move sort of out of out of the slowly out of the folk scene. Really, um, you know, he used the folk scene 
um, as a kind of stepping stone to a large extent. It suited some of his music. But Bob Dylan never just wanted to be a folk singer, whereas someone like Martin Carthy, that's his heart and soul. You know, he still does all the old traditional folk songs and performs them beautifully. You know, Dylan was going somewhere else. <laughs> you know, this is this is the, the person who always wanted to be a band, always wanted to play popular music, but but all sorts of strands of that sort of kind. So he it was a stepping stone for him to, to use the folk scene. Um, but it was it gave him the confidence that he could take on the world really if you like um and we do explore certain aspects such as um the meeting with robert graves over here and dylan then seeing that his own kind of literary ambitions could be matched you know this was a literary hero that he met and he wasn't particularly impressed with you know and as a, as a young um a young confident person you know he could see i can do this stuff you know and that was important and also, and, and this is the other side of the coin, I think when when this opportunity came through the BBC, and it is a bizarre notion that he should come over to act in a play, I think Albert Grossman wanted to see what he'd got from Dylan. You know, he'd originally wanted to sign up a band to replace the Weavers, you know, and, and Dylan was a really strange kind of act. You know, and I think Albert Grossman wanted to see how he could cope and how he could perform and whether he got a, a potential global star. And this kind of re-energized both of them, I think, to think, well, actually, yeah, we can do this. Um, and there wasn't much turning back from freewheeling, really. That was it. They were off. We're talking with Jackie Lees and Keith Miles about their book, Bob Dylan in London, Troubadour Tales. Uh, speaking of Troubadour Tales, eight nights after the King and Queen, he performs at the Troubadour Club, which, in addition to giving the book your subtitle, has a very storied legacy in the history of British folk clubs. Everyone from Dylan and Paul Simon to Jimi Hendrix played there. Uh, and now you have the Dylan Room. What, what, tell us a little bit about the Troubadour Club and the Dylan Room. So the Dylan Room was just something that was born uh, out of the twinkling of Keith's eyes, really. One day, day we had gone on a tour. The, the book itself, Bob Dylan in London, really reflects our own journey through London. It is a guidebook, as you said, Stu, in your introduction. You can just take it and go around all these locations. But what we were very conscious of was that there was no place in London that really celebrated Bob Dylan. So uh, Keith pointed out one day that in Berlin, there is a Ramones Museum. Now, I love the Ramones, um, but it was the thought that they had a whole museum that seemed to make it perfectly reasonable that we should at least try and get a Dylan room somewhere. I mean, you know, didn't have to go to the whole extent of curating a museum. We'd, all, we'd been around all these different places. The Troubadour was particularly friendly. It had a very easygoing vibe. Um, so, yeah, we just asked them, could we have a bit of space? Um, all we thought we would do is put up a photograph. Um, and they said, here, have the room. Uh, and at the time, uh, on the walls were the most extraordinary ramshackle um, mixture of paintings. There were 
pictures of the Beatles who never played at the Troubadour. There were polar explorers. There was just everything uh, except really those musicians who had graced the floor of the Troubadour. So um, it was done on, on a shoestring, literally just some picture frames from Ikea. Um, prints brought off markets and wherever we could find them. Uh, we, you know, we borrowed their ladder and some soap and within a day we had the Dylan room and we are incredibly grateful to the Troubadour for having the, you know, the confidence really, the trust in us just to let us go ahead. Uh, and it's still there, it survived the pandemic, which we were quite worried about. We thought after the pandemic, perhaps, you know, the Troubadour would uh, decide to change its direction, um, but they've still got the, the Dylan room. So anyone who's ever over to London, um, it's a lovely, beautiful place to pop down to, full of history, um, and it has a, a very nice room, just with some pictures and a little bit of uh, information about Bob Dylan's time there. It's remarkable that there are actually photographs of some of those, early, the, the fact that there's a photograph of him at the King and Queen Club in 1962, that someone had the foresight to preserve those e evenings photographically. Absolutely. Yeah, One of the things Jackie and I wanted to do with the book is to get as best as we could a kind of uh, a definitive chronology of where and when Dylan played in that first few weeks. Because I think in a lot of books, including uh, Robert Shelton's book, there was just it was the pubs were wrong, the dates were wrong. It was it was a mess really, and we wanted to put that a little bit right if we could. Um, and one of the one of the ways we research that and could verify those um, dates and the particular uh, chronology was through photographs um, because there, were, uh, there was a, a wonderful couple who would photograph a lot of the folk scene uh, who took uh, Brian Shulman who took the first picture of the king and queen um, and his wife also took the troubadour pictures um, but Dylan was a big enough star in the Greenwich Village scene. Uh, as Jackie said, he was on the front page of Sing Out magazine. When he came to England, people wanted to take photos of him. <laughs> and there are great pictures. Uh, there are two or three pictures, uh, or oh, maybe, maybe more pictures of him at the Troubadour. Um, a very wonderful picture of him at the Pinder of Wakefield, which was the Singers Club um, and the King and Queen. Um, if he appeared in a folk club, you know, above a pub, someone would take a picture because it was it was a it was newsworthy enough amongst those folk um, folk fans uh, for that to be done. So that really helped our research. There were there were other possibilities of places that Dylan may have played in that first time, um, and I think the fact is. If Martin Carthy didn't remember it and there was no photo of it, then we kind of thought, well, maybe he didn't play there after all. We mentioned the importance of his time in London to Freewheeling. Freewheeling went to number one on the British charts in 1964. How did the London and the British folk scene react? Some were still, as we said in the book, though, some were still quite dismissive of him because we quote from um, Sing magazine, which is a UK magazine, um, that felt that Dylan was leading a kind of new wave of folk. 
um, uh, for folk music. Um, and they noted that most folk fans were still in the anti-Dylan camp after freewheeling. Um, and they advised at the time that his writing talents are weakening, which is quite a shocking thing to be saying at that point in time. Um, and I think, I don't know, because when you get to, um, to 1965 uh, and then 66, obviously, you've, as Dylan's going to go electric, um, he had carried with him some of the hardcore folk fans. But I've always found that quite odd because right prior to 66, quite a long way back from 66, Dylan was electrifying his music. Um, so I'm not sure that there's a cut and dried answer to how he was received. We, we know after freewheeling that, the, for example, the Beatles, um, they've recorded that, uh, that they never took freewheeling off. Uh, it was, they were playing it all the time. They wore it out. But I think there was still probably a, 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 a sizable chunk of British folk fans who still saw him as an upstart, not quite the real thing. I'm but sure. There's also, a, well, yeah, there, there's a, a reasonable uh, core of those old folk uh, fans that just wanted to keep it, um, you know, uh, regulated within the small world that it was. Um, I, th I think they're the ones that were never going to like Bob Dylan because he made everything popular. You know, and commercially successful, and that's you know almost anathema to that kind of um, uh, well, what our version of people's songs over here really that just want to do uh, um, keep everything very um, uh, rigid, insular, and, and, and certainly uncommercially successful. As as you mentioned, Dylan was not the only American folk singer in London that winter of 62-63. Richard Farina, who had not yet adopted the tilde on, on his name, and Rick Von Schmidt, both of whom Dylan knew well, were also there, staying at what appears to be a palatial estate at 9 Trigunter Road. Why is their presence so important to Dylan's development? I shall leave Keith to tell you that story. That's the one he researched in great detail. Well, it was it was a story that fascinated me. These were the kind of things that when when Jackie and I were researching it, and and you know, I just really did want to get these stories out to people um, because you know um, Richard Farina and, and Rick von Schmidt were over here for for their own purposes um, uh, to record um, and. They met up with Dylan. They obviously had to meet up at the, the, the Troubadour. Um, but the, the Nine Tragunta Road there's a, um, uh, was, was a fine base for them until they, they all got thrown out for, for partying. Um, but it was great for Dylan because I think his meeting with Robert Graves was a pretty important one. Um, you know, it's his first real meeting of a literary figure. Um, and Robert Graves we don't we don't tend to hear too much about him but in the 60s and the 70s he was a huge um literary giant really um with with uh, goodbye to all that and i claudius they were they were huge um best-selling best-selling books um but the white goddess which which he wrote which was the influence for a lot of the um the counterculture um 
you know, was an important book to be discussed and to be seen with. Um, so for, for Dylan to meet Graves, who's, who's the most, if you ever watch any of those grainy old black and white YouTube interviews from the 50s and 60s with Robert Graves, he was an incredibly awful, pompous old English, <laughs> um, I don't know what the word is, anyway, I, I nearly said a bad word, but you know, he was, he was dreadfully pompous, um, and for personal reasons, um, he he didn't really like Americans. Um, so the the work that they had around Redcliffe Square and the discussion of, of White Goddess um, must have been quite something, you know, when when they met at Tregunter Road. Um, but it was important. I think the most important thing for Dylan is seeing that actually, do you know what? I can be as as much of a literary star as these people. I can do this. Um, and, you know, a young man sometimes, I guess, has to meet their, uh, their, their idols to, to realise that they can, they can achieve the same. It's, he seems to have had a similar experience with Robert Graves as he did with Carl Sandburg, that he goes to visit them and they won't see him. Absolutely. And um, Dylan has this kind of relationship with people. I, I like to think that he had the same kind of relationship, for example, with, with John Lennon. You know, he, he's very, very competitive. You know, he's always marking himself against these kind of people. Am I as good as them? Can I achieve more? I think with Robert Graves, it's really important that he, he sees someone that he can he can surpass as a literary figure, which I personally think he did by a long way. Jackie, you, you were sort of laughing when I asked Keith this question. What, what was it about about this question that tickled your, your fancy? Well, it's just that Keith, I remember we sat in a pub in Greenwich one night and Keith had been researching Tregunter Road and he was so buzzing with the excitement <laughs> of everything that he had found out. Um, and I think, as you know, Stu, he, uh, that was what he went to the inaugural um, World of Bob Dylan conference and spoke about. So it's just become a, a, a subject that Keith will, um, I was going to say, bore anybody to death, talk at great length. And also, you know, I mean, you will hear, obviously, that there is speculation in what Keith says. We can only speculate, but there's no reason not to speculate. Of course, we, we can't know a lot of these things. Um, so sometimes I would sit, I will sit back the the editor that we that we had for the book, because uh, I don't know if you know, but we didn't get a publisher straight away. We were going to self-publish. It was just something we did for love. It was not at all meant to be a well. So it was meant to be whatever it was meant to be. But we did it for pleasure. And the editor that I was using to help me with the editing at the beginning, he was reading some of Keith's speculations uh, on the relationship with Robert Graves and how this influenced him. And, Keith, and my editor was saying, hmm, I don't know if you can say this, <laughs> but... So my view is the same as Bob Dylan, just say it. It's what I think. <laughs> exactly. So that's why I was smiling, Stu, as it kind of, it's one of those things that uh, has, Keith has really made his own subject area. Well, it was one of the one of the things when we were looking around, as as you know, Jackie said, we looked to go around the, the sort of various places, you know, and and you know, it amazed us that you know, for example, you know, the Savoy Steps, Subterranean Homesick Blues, the 
first real music video, you know, there are still people in the world that think and thought that was New York. Um, you know, and the fact that Nine Tragunta Road, uh, Redcliffe Square, where this walk was with, with Dylan and Robert Grace, none of these things had ever been really explored. People hadn't bothered to go down and find where they are. You know, for example, look up the address of where Dylan parted with Farina and Von Schmidt and met Robert Graves, etc., etc. You know, no one had looked up where that actually was, you know, or where the square, you know, there's there's a passing um, uh, reference to where this walk was uh, in the evening um, from Dylan in Chronicles. No one bothered to check it out. No one bothered to see, was there a Paddington Square? No. <laughs> we can find where it is. It's at the back of Tregunta Road, you know. It's but no one had bothered to do that, you know. And it took Jackie and I to actually go out to these places to find it, which is I find pretty extraordinary, you know. Um, and um, well, I find it pretty extraordinary that of the thousands of books about Bob Dylan, no one had written one about Bob Dylan in London before, um, you know. So. Yeah, it, it was it was all new. We were we were our own amateur sleuths in everything. But uh, yeah, no, it was, it was it was wonderful doing that research. But extraordinary that uh, um, people will still want to write endless numbers of books about his lyrics, but not terribly much about this sort of thing. The reality informs the art, and it's it's always interesting to have actual facts upon which to, to base analysis. And you have anticipated my next question, which is about the filming of the video Subterranean Homesick Blues, arguably the most important and famous music video, certainly of the pre-MTV era. As you say, a lot of people think it was done in New York because it's got that gritty backdrop, but it was actually filmed by D.A. Pennebaker on the Savoy Steps. But there were two other videos of the song filmed that day. Tell us about those other two videos of the song that were filmed that day. So, uh, as you rightly say, there were three um, versions shot altogether by D.A. Pennebaker. So the uh, one of them was on the roof of the Savoy Hotel. You can see them in the documentary No Direction Home. So uh, they, they are preserved for anybody who's interested in looking them up. So one was on the roof of the Savoy Hotel, which was, a, I think, the, a total disaster because it was very windy and you can see Dylan with a coat on and sort of wrestling with the cue cards. It can't have been easy in any conditions to have that number of cue cards and fling them to the ground. Um, and then the other one was uh, in, it's called Embankment Gardens, um, and it's just outside the Savoy Hotel, the, uh, yeah, the back of the Savoy Hotel, between the hotel itself and the River Thames. And there was an art exhibition in the gardens at the time. So Dylan, um, uh, Ginsberg and Robert, uh, Bob Newworth, I think it is, appear in that version. Um, but the police moved them on because I think they were blocking the art exhibits. Um, but it, when you see the other two and then you see it next to the Savoy Steps, well, there's just no contest. You know, Savoy Steps was so obviously the right, the right choice. Uh, and it's still there, Stu. Anyone can turn up. And there's been a lot of building work there lately. So ironically, it has still had, it, there's still scaffolding there as it was before. Um, but the last time Keith and I were there, 
there was a big hoarding right in front of the um, the actual Savoy steps, which is just a little cobbled alley. On one side is the Savoy Hotel, on the other is a beautiful chapel called the Queen's Chapel of the Savoy. And we tell you about that in the book. And funnily enough, Martin Carthy was a chorister at the Queen's Chapel of the Savoy, just to sort of bring the, bring the circle round. Um, but you can stand where Dylan stood, you can bring your own cue cards as Keith and I have done. And we do some walking tours in London uh, based on the book with a very wonderful professional tour guide. And we normally turn up with cue cards uh, there. People can stand in Dylan's footsteps. Um, and uh, we, we've been arguing for a long time. There should be a plaque there to celebrate this um, this momentous event, this video. Um, but the Queen won't let us have one on the side of the Savoy Chapel, of the Queen's Chapel, and the Savoy Hotel aren't playing ball either. So for now, still no plaque, uh, no plaque, unfortunately. There are stories everywhere about people who've got one of the cards, you know, oh, my dad was a taxi driver who picked them up at the time and I've got one, you know, there's, there's, a, there's an awful lot of stories. They were just written on the back of the, um, you know, the sort of squares of cardboard that go on the back of a shirt in a laundry. Yeah. They were what they used from the laundry at the Savoy Hotel and, and uh, friends who were dropping in to see him, Donovan, even Joan Byers at that point. Uh, they were they wrote the cards that the likelihood that they would have survived these sort of fairly uh, you know fairly flimsy items is is middling to nothing i would yeah. say um but no in the exhibition they are not original don't, don't get fooled on ebay folks yeah. if they tell you the cards don't get fooled <laughs> for, for those who haven't seen it al yankovic has a parody video of this video that the whole song is a, is in palindrome and it is one of the most brilliant artistic parodies i have ever seen it's just it's remarkably uh, clever and uh, it, it, uh highly recommended between dylan played in may 1965 and may 1966 four shows at the royal albert hall it is hard to believe that one artist could change so much in one year and received such wildly different reactions. What, what kind of first-person accounts of those concerts did you get for the book? Um, well, there are a lot of reports from people that we that we read about, and I had the pleasure of speaking to my mother's neighbour, who was at both concerts, for example. I couldn't believe I had lived next door to this woman most of my life growing up, and she had been at Dylan's concerts in 65 and 6. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, could there, I mean, in the history of popular music, could there have been such an incredible... Uh, turnaround in such a short space of time from utter silent reverence, adulation to booing. I mean, we all know the, the infamous cry of Judas, traitor. I mean, we, we do know that some of the opposition in the 66 tour was uh, orchestrated. You know, uh, it, it wasn't just random. There were whole groups of people that would turn up deliberately to, uh, to sort of sabotage the concerts, people who felt that, you know, he was a traitor to folk music. Um, but yes, there are many, many reports. Uh, I particularly like, I listened, this isn't, you know, I didn't hear it directly myself, but uh, Richard Alderson, 
who did the sound for the uh, 66 tour. It's on YouTube, it's available. What a fascinating uh, um, report that he gives of how in the dark he was about how to mic up this, uh, you know, the band and Dylan. Um, it, it was, it's just quite remarkable, really. Uh, so yes, the Albert Hall saw uh, two very, very different concerts uh, in the space of those 12 months. And Dylan would not return to the United Kingdom for 12 years, but when he did, it was with a splash. Six nights sold out at the 16,000 seat Earl's Court Exhibition Center. One of you was there. Yes, I was, I was there, with, with sleeping on the pavement with my sister to get tickets. We, uh, we, we slept overnight on the, the streets of Hammersmith um to get tickets and it's amazing that um you know this is post-punk over here and post-post-punk over here and yet in 1978 you know when he came back there was real dylan mania you know people queued for the, these tickets all over in different venues all, all over the country here and many like the sister and myself you know were, were, were sleeping overnight um, younger viewers won't know what I'm talking about because they just get their tickets online. But you know, in those days, you physically went down to get a ticket someplace, um, and it was it was it was wonderfully exciting. Um, but the the real Dylan mania took, um, I think, took the whole management team by surprise. Um, so they realised that actually, gosh, we've we've sold out all these nights at Earl's Court and we could sell it over and over again. Um, and that's when they came up with the concept of um, uh, the picnic and Blackbush and uh, a, a real, a really under-facilitated uh, festival um, out in a, a disused aerodrome outside of London, um, which uh, so many people went to and so many people never got home from that night. Uh, but uh, um, and really, I mean, you know, we, we we have had debates about this. I think to a to a reasonable extent, it kind of kickstarted the modern festival again, because you know it, it was just the, the notion of, of Dylan's management team that they needed to put him on somewhere, and all the venues were booked up. So they'd just find a field, basically. Um, and we'd had all the early Glastonbury's and all the, the early sort of hippie festivals. And by 78, it was really that. Um, I think we have to thank Bob Dylan um, and Eric Clapton's comments, which spawned Rock Against Racism, um, for the modern festival again in this country. Um, so it was it was wonderful, but yes, I was I was on the streets of Hammersmith getting the tickets for that. The final London experience you account is, I think, the strangest of all. Dylan's visit in July 1993 to Camden Town and Crouch End. Talk a bit about that walkabout. Well, Dylan was here because he was very good friends with producer Dave Stewart, an artist, Dave Stewart, and they decided that for um, the video to um, Blood In My Eyes, they would, they would do a, a, a walkabout of Camden. And uh, it's, it's one of, the, one of the, the truly great Dylan music videos, really. I think it's beautifully well done. Um, and we trace a bit of the steps of that. We, um, 
we wanted to put that 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 whole episode across because I think it's it's not it's not the classic Dylan in London episode. You know that is very much the um, uh, don't look back in the early days. But I think you know this is this is Dylan on, on fine form, and uh, it was uh, yeah, an extraordinary thing. Uh, people should should watch the video, um, see how uh, you can go through both known and unknown as an artist through the streets of London. Uh, there are plenty of people walking right by him. Um, and, you know, we trace, we trace some of the, the places there. Um, the cover of, of World Gone Wrong is uh, the, the story behind that, which I find fascinating, which, which we have in the book. Um, you know, unfortunately, the, the cafe that he's in for that, um, Flute's Cradle, is, is no longer there in Camden. Um, it's an all-you-can-eat Chinese restaurant, um, but you know Camden remains pretty much the same. And uh, we, we recently, we, uh, as you probably know, with the Cambridge um, Bob Dylan Society, Jackie and I retraced the steps of that video, <laughs> which was great fun. Great fun. And to tell the story: is the story of Dave the Plumber apocryphal or real? I'm well. I'm pretty sure it's real, and my my main there's a there's a beautiful short film about it, which which takes a very different kind of dramatic um, angle to it, but essentially tells the story. Um, but the story we have in the book is the story uh, of the the wife in this episode who rang into a radio station Danny Baker who does a radio um, music station over here on Saturday mornings she rang in to, to give this story you know and 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 yeah I mean it, it's as far as we're aware it's 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 completely right it's it's a very Dylan thing to do it has to be said <laughs> Jackie you've got a very bemused look on your face no, I was. I'm less less completely convinced, um, <laughs> but uh, but I think it is certainly possible. Um, and one of the reasons that the the mix up happened that you know Dylan is looking for Dave Stewart, knocks on a door to have it opened by Dave's wife, but it's not Dave Stewart, it's Dave the plumber. Um, but the reason why that is so possible is that in Crouch End, there are some names that all sound so similar. So there's Crouch End Hill and there's Crouch Hill. Um, and it's perfectly possible that somebody could, you know, be misdirected and then end up going to the wrong door. So I, I think, Stu, all I can say is I would love for it to be true because it's such a beautiful story. Um, but never going to be 100% able to say that it is. The, the story is Bob knocks on the door, says, hi, is Dave here? Doesn't say, is Dave Stewart here? Just says, is Dave here? And, and the woman says, well, he's out on a call, but come on and wait, gives him some tea. And it's not unusual for someone to be named Dave. It's not a, mm -hmm. a unique name. And you know, I can only imagine she calls, honey, did you invite Bob Dylan? <laughs> I think it's why we like it so much is that there is that sort of idea that it could happen to anyone, that you could just end up meeting him uh, just by this ridiculous uh, twist of fate, to coin a phrase.
and you could and you could be a, a largely unknown painter and have your fortunes markedly affected by a, a simple twist of fate and a temporary lapse by some attorneys. Uh, yes, indeed, that is a wonderful story. As, as Keith said, the uh, the cover of World Gone Wrong um, is by an artist called Peter Gallagher, um, whose painting L'Etranger, based on an Albert Camus novel, was um, behind where Bob Dylan was sitting um, in, in uh, Camden Town and ended up on the cover of the album, but nobody had thought to check with the artist for rights to, to use that image. And the first the artist knew about it was I think he got phoned up by a friend or relative to say, oh, I've just seen your, your picture. It's on the, you know, the bus shelter where they were advertising the album. Um, so there began a, I mean, it was a, a lot more complicated. You have to read the book to help find the whole story about someone trying to buy the painting because she obviously realized that uh, there was going to be money in it. Uh, in the end, uh, Dylan himself, uh, or Dylan's team bought it. Um, and then, yeah, it was, a, it was very complicated, but it certainly goes to show uh, never put anything on the cover of an album without checking the rights to use the artwork. The cover of Rough and Rowdy Ways has a, a photograph. Did they ever get the license for that? Yeah, they, they did. That's a, that's another um, English photographer way back, and that's from that original photograph that has been. Uh, is the word colorized? I don't know, yeah. but been, yeah, um, uh, for Rough and Rowdy Ways, it, the, the the actual picture had appeared in several other album covers. Um, but they they changed it around a little. But that was from a uh, an English photographer called Ian Bell uh, took that picture in the in the in the sixties in a, in a club in the East End. Now Dylan had a number of other London and London area experiences, which you list in the back, but but don't detail. Tr uh, trying to record with John Mayall's Blues Breakers, uh, the concert scene in the movie Hearts of Fire, uh, the Princess Trust. Why did you not? write in detail about those as well space yeah that's a, that's a good question we, we really we wanted the book to be uh, very accessible fun a, a real con uh, contrast with a lot of the dylan literature that's out there we wanted it to have a very uh, light feel to it which is why we've got those beautiful illustrations from julia vetronjek for example the cartoon style um, I mean, where would you stop, Stu? We also, it was it was meant to be a book. Um, and if we had done, if we had, for example, covered the Star Cafe or, um, you know, the the uh, Queensgate Muse, uh, where he uh, does the, 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 the lyrics uh, in front of the pet shop. Yeah. Um, uh, if we had, how would we have managed to balance the book out, is what I'm trying to say, rather, not very well. Yeah. Because some places would only generate a few lines, and then you've got the Savoy Hotel, which you could write a whole book about itself. So yeah, we we edited it. I mean, we've been asked this question a lot. Um, I was asked recently, well, you know, why didn't you talk about Wembley Stadium and the Tom Petty tour? And um, you know, there are there are 101 other locations that we could have chosen, but we felt it was just nice to choose these these big standout places that had really good stories to go with them, because the subtitle Troubadour Tales is meant to give you a clue as to the type of book it is. It's stories um, that go along with this uh, with this uh, the, 
you know, the, the locations that we focus on. So if there wasn't a good story enough to, to, to make a chapter, then we didn't, uh, we didn't include it. We just gave it a note at the end. It, it's tales. It's not the encyclopedia of Bob Dylan. In, in, <laughs> I believe somebody might have done that. <laughs> yeah. What was the division of labor in researching and writing the book? We did half and half. Um, when we started, I think we literally had a list of about 100 places. And, you know, we were, Keith's used the word amateur. I mean, I cannot stress that enough. We Neither of us were writers. Neither of us had ever written a book before. Um, so we it kept going through different incarnations. All we knew was from the start, there was going to be a map in the middle. That was the one thing we knew and that there was going to be no footnotes. It wasn't going to be one of those books with, you know, 100 references per chapter. Um, and then eventually we honed it down to what we thought were eight well-balanced chapters. We, we did four each. Um, as I was, my job at the time was an editor and a, a legal writer, which is, I assure you, extremely different kind of writing. Um, I did the first edits, my friend did the second edits, I did a re-edit, and then eventually, obviously, it was properly professionally edited after that. So it was very much a 50-50 split. Well, well, for amateurs, it is a very successful first effort. It, it gives a very interesting and insightful picture of Bob's formative experiences in London. As you say, his time in London was critical to his development as an artist and a performer. And I think you've done a real service to the literature of, of Bob's, uh, the, the real, a real service to the literature of Dylanology. And Keith, we look forward very much to your account of his time in New York City, which will be published in about three weeks. And uh, we will hope to have you back uh, and uh, talk about that when it comes out. Absolutely. I'd love to, Stu. That would be fabulous. Thank you. Well, thank you again. So again, the book is Bob Dylan in London, Troubadour Tales, and, and people can get it from their, their favorite bookseller and purveyor of printed material. Next week on Mass and Bookbeat, an encore presentation of our conversation with UW professor Paige Glotzer about her book, How the Suburbs Were Segregated, The Business of Exclusionary Housing, 1890 to 1960. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman, Engineer Chuck Cademan, and all of us here at Mass and Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison, listener sponsored community radio.